You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the For Love of the Land podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keat and Matt Dye. Each week, we're interviewing guests from across America. They all have one thing in common. They all are tied to the land. So if you're like us and you love all things land, welcome home. Alrighty, everybody. Welcome to another Land and Legacy for Love of the Land podcast. This is your host, Matt Dye. And I've got a special guest on the line today. Um, and we're talking about something that we've never talked about uh, on a podcast in the past. So this is super exciting to be able to discuss something new. And, and it's an aspect of land that is truthfully, um, how should I say this, M- misunderstood is a good word. Um, a lot of people just are, are not knowledgeable about this resource. And I think as we do learn about it today, you'll be kind of blown away at the impact that it has on the landscape, the role that it's played, and how many acres used to be pre-settlement devoted to this type of ecosystem. So without further ado, Brian Tao, the man, the myth, the legend, are you there? I am here. I, I don't I don't know that I... You live up to it. Up to the introduction, but, but you we'll do. see. You do. Um, this is going to be a more familiar name um, as we continue down the road of podcasts and everything because you're just, daggummit, you're knowledgeable. And that's what we like, and um, sharing that knowledge with people is uh, something that we can all get behind. And today, specifically though, we're talking about swamps, wetlands, whatever you want to call it, bogs, wherever you're at. Every every area's got a different name for them, but wetlands is what we're talking about. And, <coughs> excuse me, still trying to get over this cold, but this is one of those aspects of land that we talked about as often thought of as like marginal or or people just don't care about them they think it's a waste of land oh i got i've got 100 acres but 20 of it's just a swamp or 20 of it's just a wetland i can't really use it for anything we want to talk today about how we can best use it how we can best manage it and understand again the role that it plays so brian before we jump into all of that why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself Bring us up to speed on you and why you are the man, the myth, the legend, and then two, what you know 
in the past about managing these wetlands? What experiences you've had, kind of where you hail from too, because that's that's largely and part of um, why you're so knowledgeable about them. Yeah, uh, like I said, I'll, I'll try to do what, my best to cover what I can. But you know, much of my experience, uh, pretty much for me, started back when I was um, back in undergrad, uh, going to college. Um, wildlife is has always been an interest of me, of mine and, and now especially now that I'm a biologist and doing consulting and contracting work as well. You know, but you know, back then my interest kinda kinda got a start though, wasn't even in wildlife, but it was actually in fisheries. I, mm-hmm. I worked uh for you know, for about three and a half years while I was in college for the Missouri Department of Conservation and I, I was a temporary, you know, in fisheries division and you know, and which I did a lot, lots of cool stuff, trapping fish and netting fish and shocking fish and doing all oh, sorts yeah. of stuff, but also dealing with, you know, like stream stabilization and, and wetland and water quality in general uh, was also a big part of that, um, which is, you know, kind of got my, my start, uh, you know, as far as actually true knowledge, even though um, growing up, I, you know, I, I pretty much, I, I sink my toes every spring and summer in uh, in a, in a, in a, it's called a drainage ditch, uh, mm-hmm. Little River Drainage, which is in the southeast part of the state, uh, just outside of Sykeston. Um, you know, that's pretty much where I, I wallowed around in the mud and the, and the, in, in between my toes, up and down the ditches, catching bass and, and yellow cat, uh, mud, you know, uh, mud cat or brown cat, as, mm-hmm. you know, uh, brown catfish is what they're truly called, but, but, uh, you know, just down in the boot hill because once upon a time, that's what it was, it was all swamp. But, you know, I, like I said, I, I kind of grew up down there, uh, grew up in around cypress trees and and, um, and in that neighborhood, but didn't really kind of get a, a good feel or a, a good appreciation for what it was until later in life. You know, so I kind of started in college and, and then even later than that, uh, you know, really and truly, because as I, um, you know, got older, uh, waterfowl was become a big, bigger part of my life and our hunting waterfowl. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, we... Um, Back in 2005, my my wife and I actually purchased our, our own little piece of property, which was a a little row crop field that you know had had uh, been in her family over a period of time, and her her grandfather had actually cleared the land, and then it was sold to uh, another farmer, and then uh, and then later we she and I had the opportunity to, to purchase it, and so we bought it, and then of all things we put it back into a, a wetland state. Uh, it was a, just cool. a place that was difficult to. Whole, you know, it was hard to grow crops on. That's what the farmer always said. He said, ah, I kept the plants feet too wet. Basically mm-hmm. talking about the roots kept water there too much. And so it was difficult to grow crops there, but, you know, but which is perfect place for a wetland. Yeah. And uh, so we went ahead and we put it into a uh, CRP program and, and um, levied it off and, and uh, essentially managed it for waterfowl and moist soil. And we do have trees there uh, and some, some deer on it as well and, and shot a turkey there and, and uh, which is kind of a you know like there's a whole neat scenario there that kind of encompasses that little spot, but um, you know that's really you know kind of gives me even a better appreciation or greater appreciation of what you can do you know with the wetland and kind of those little muddy muddy wet wet spots that mm-hmm. we don't think of being able to utilize very often. Yeah, and again it goes back to you know land use and how how the land should be used um, and how we typically try and, and make it just as productive as possible. And that may be different from, from you know, across the country. But productive as possible may be pasture. Productive as possible in other areas may be crops. But these wet areas tend to do 
poorly when we try and make them something that they're not. When we try and and convert them into something that, um, you know, truthfully, they they shouldn't be. And the soils they are, that are present don't allow for the type of yields that you want off of them. And so you go back to your case where you kind of identified that, and now you've got experience just on that one property of going basically reverting back to nature so start to finish of creating this wetland that is now extremely diverse that's attracting game species that's attracting incredible vegetation species and now those soils are producing what they should be producing naturally and doing and acting as they should be um so before we get fully into that i guess kind of transitional story you mentioned something about your upbringing and being from southeast Missouri and the, kind of the Delta, the Sykeston area, um, which now as you drive through is flat as a pancake, which it was then, but it's all tillable crop ground now. Uh, very rich, fertile soils, but those were not always like that. So kind of take us back to prior to settling those areas, what it would have looked like in a natural state. And, and when I say the Delta, we're, we're also going to include West Tennessee, West Kentucky, Eastern Arkansas, Mississippi, Western portion of Mississippi, anywhere that basically is in the Delta of the Mississippi floodway. This is what the area could have and would have looked like. Now, again, we, we're seeing crops everywhere. But, Brian, kind of paint that picture for us of what, again, natural setting that would have looked like. Well, prior to, you know, and, and, and I may get the date a little bit wrong, but I'm, I'm thinking it was like the 1920s, mm-hmm. uh, and especially in the 30s after, you know, the, the Depression era, you know, they really started – creating what we call drainage drainage ditch which as i mentioned earlier little, little river drainage uh, is uh there's each one of those drainage districts or, or drainage drainage ditches are also numbered but uh but but they just became straight long uh paths for water just to just to drain essentially a cypress tupelo swamp mm-hmm. because that's a, that's all that the area was it was low it was boggy you know there were some rises here and there over time they you know, some of it was from earthquake and tremors and things that occurred, you know, in the neighborhood because there's a huge fault down there. Everybody's mm-hmm. probably heard of the New Madrid earthquake and the New Madrid County or the New Madrid fault. But, you know, so you had a little bit of upheavals and, and, and undulations and topography because of that. But overall, it was. It was just a really flat uh, part of the world to where, you know, if, if it deviated much over a foot, you know, a, a foot rise is almost like a hill down there in many places. <laughs> They're like that ridge so, over there. And, and, and exactly. we're like, yeah, yeah. boy, you don't know what a ridge is. Ah, no, that that, no, that mean, big hill. And it was. I mean, it was pretty much mosquito-infested, malaria, you know, yeah. type areas that you would have thought about. I mean, and until uh, drainage districts were established by, you know, the U.S. government to come in and they were uh, essentially was a – somewhat of a tax-based system but really and truly it was it was just kind of a local local area dealing with the federal federal government allocated dollars say hey, mm-hmm. you know you guys improve you know improve the land so to speak and uh, drain all that drain all that water make it usable space and 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 so that's what these drainage districts did and the the only drainage district in southeast missouri now is what's called the little river drainage district uh which uh it's you know kind of like i said there's a whole neat story behind them 
Um, you know, but that is the only remaining one uh, today that's still in operation. And they, they control and own and operate about 2,500 acres, but mm-hmm. um, that that is inside of what we would consider floodplains of some of the major major floodways in the neighborhood, you know, but everything else has kind of been levied off and, and have been privatized to where, you know, as you said, it's kind of, it's row crop. Um, and, and essentially all those swamps have been drained. Um, Mingo, if anybody's ever heard of Mingo or mm-hmm. they can Google and research and kind of look at pictures, you know, of what's a, a Mingo fish and wildlife refuge or U.S. refuge. And that would give you an idea, you know, just exactly. looking at some of those pictures like online, that would give you the perfect thought process of, an image of what that entire area looked like. So millions of acres of, of Cypress Tupelo swamp, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, but the few, a few Oak flats here and there. And, and, you know, in some, some areas, but pretty much it was just a, it was a vast swampland. Absolutely. That's a, that's a great picture. And, and you, you brought up another, another point. Um, yeah. Working in and out of Delaware, a couple properties, um, they've got what they refer to out there as tax distance ditches and it's the very same thing you know their their land um in in some portions of the state was pretty marginal and pretty swampy so they'd go through and create these tax ditches and drain the land and now a lot of property lines tend to be following tax ditches um because of you know just the way that that over time parceled off and whatnot but uh, that's a very common thing in a lot of different areas so your your specific area in the country may have a different name for it but we're talking drainage ditches where we're getting water out from where it used to be um that was historically most likely swampland again what you're seeing in some of the best ag areas now um, up and down or close to waterways would have resembled what we're saying it was mingo wildlife refuge in uh missouri so pretty cool pretty cool stuff what what kind of other species besides the cypress, which honestly is one of my favorite trees outside of like a bur oak, if if I'm going into a different ecosystem, that cypress is absolutely incredible. I don't know what it, it is about it. It's just so different um, from just the way it grows, the the knees that pop up and oh, incredible, beautiful. Yeah, so, you know. Uh... Cypress, Tupelo, obviously, were in the, the very wet locations, you know, mm-hmm. the places that, that held water, um, you know, for for a vast majority of the year, if not all year long. Right. But then you also, you know, kind of had some of the little higher elevations, those places I, I told you had what you, I guess you would somewhat consider a little bit of topography. You know, then you kind of get up in the pin oaks, yes. uh, you know, super, super good deer food, super good turkey food, uh, mm-hmm. and ducks and waterfowl as well, love them. You know, then you also have water chestnut. You have, uh, you know, water oak, swamp white oak. Probably a lot uh, of green ash, know, box elder. Uh, all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, yeah, the the less desirable trees that we yep. think of. You know, and you get some, you know, red maple uh, growing in there as well. So I mean, you get you get a you get a wide variety, especially those wetland species, sycamore. Uh, you know, you know, in, in locations as well. But you know, but you know, the wild, more wildlife usable. You know, a lot of your oaks. Uh, for sure. Certainly. So vast deforestation of those areas. So first of all, Mm -hmm. you know, we we drained those areas, got them out, dried them out, and then went in and logged them. And then, you know, through that clearing process, now they're tillable ag fields. Um, And some of those areas, you know, now that we're looking at them, and we've 
we've adopted probably our planting strategy in some of these areas um, because they are wetter areas that tend to hold water based on the soils and everything. We're planting crops such as rice in these areas because they're best suited for wet feet. Yeah. And and there's just a really good aquifer underneath. I mean, mm-hmm. depending on the neighborhood, there's a super good. It's just it's it's just a wet area in general. So underneath there is an aquifer, um, you know. But one thing I would point out about much of that ground, while while it is very, you know, it is very fertile, and it does make some really, you know, does grow some really good crop and high yield and high yields. Oftentimes, though, it does require a lot of input, mm-hmm. you know, whether that's chemical fertilizers, whether or not that's a irrigation, you know, compared to some of the locations such as you look at in some locations in Iowa, mm-hmm. you know, I would argue those soils are way richer and, sure. and, way, and, and way more fertile uh, that are above the flood, well above the floodplain, those old glaciated plains that's right. that are up there. Uh, because they don't require that irrigation. They don't require mm-hmm. as much of the in, the so-called inputs, uh, you know, uh, to actually get that crop to grow. So, I mean, you know, that kind of also kind of highlights a little bit of the fact that while it is it is fertile and it does grow stuff, you know, it, it may not be nearly as, as good uh, for for crops and for growing things as what you, what you might realize. You know, because, you know, human, you know, mankind, I mean, it's a, a huge engineering feat to think about, you know, draining millions of acres of swamps. Mm-hmm. You know, it's also another engineering feat, honestly, to kind of get crops to grow in some of that area. Yeah, you know, just because it's a lot of extra work, it's a lot of, you know, there there are a few more inputs. So it's just kind of, you know, we're mankind's kind of stubborn, hard-headed. We get something <laughs> in our mind, we're going to make it happen one way or the other. Very so. much so. And what's yeah. appealing to, to farmers in this area is it's very flat. Like yes. the, the ground is easily workable. And so you don't have the hills to contend with. And, and that's most likely another uh, reason that they kind of set their eyes on it back when and said, oh, it's clear that it's flat as a pancake. We can plant here and, and right. have less work to make, um, to basically put seed in the ground. So back to kind of the, the story of, okay, let's understand the, the role that a wetland plays in our ecosystem. Because, again, we often think about, oh, it's just a nasty old stagnant water swamp or wetland but in reality these wetlands if you look at them in the way that they're placed naturally across the landscape is they're simply a buffer there's runoff from hills from the highlands that go down into these swamps filter very slowly through the swamp and all the dense vegetation and the water infiltration systems and then they would get to the actual mainstream water itself so for this instance we're talking about southeast missouri or let's say west tennessee would be the actual mississippi river so these wetlands though play a critical role in filtering out the mess if you will or runoff um, and pollutants getting into the actual water stream itself the mainstream um so they play an important role but we've we've devalued that over time and and some some have been left alone some are enrolled in conservation easements to to protect them now that we fully understand that value um but as a landowner though when we look at it brian what do you see when you see a wetland and and how do you you know, try and convey the importance of that to uh, a landowner who may be, let's say, looking for 
to purchase a property that's got a wetland on it. Um, how do you convince them and shape, let's say, maybe that mindset of a, of a wetland? What role it plays? Yeah, and in, in, in every every landowner has a different perspective or potentially a different interest. You know, for me, you know, obviously, you know, as as a hunter, but also a conservationist, you know, I I look at wetlands as being a potential place where I can I can hunt waterfowl specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, just kind of a, a neat, you know, something, something I do. Um, and, and, and I, and I manage, you know, like I said, I've got a piece of property that I manage for that. Um, and the whole, but the whole purpose is, is essentially to hold water. Um, and, and as you said, kind of be a filter, but also a rejuvenator of even the aquifers that are mm-hmm. underneath. Um, you know, that's cause that's our well drinking water. Uh, that's, you know, that's also, you know, in that part of the world, it's also where, uh, the lifeblood of many of those row crops come from is for, for the irrigation, you know, sure. to, ir- to irrigate those, um, you know, but you're right in that it, you know, becomes a, a major filter. And that's what, and I think that's the biggest point that, um, you know, that is there, but there's also, there's always just a different perspective. You know, when you look at, you know, what, what would, what, you know, what's a selling point for someone said for me, it's ducks, mm-hmm. you know, for somebody else, it may be, you know, this time of the year, listening to a spring peeper, you sure. know, uh, you know going I mean, crazy. There's, there's, yeah, there's, 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 there's all sorts of different critters and wildlife and different things that benefit from it. And, you know, and so, you know, just from that standpoint, we, we do take some enjoyment, but, it, you know, probably the true conservationist at heart would say, okay, yeah, now we got to look at how much contaminants is taken out, you know, how much, how much soil, you know, how much essentially sediment is deposited in those, mm-hmm. you know, at, you know, during rain events and heavy events to work, that would have otherwise went into a stream or a tributary, you know, that would have, you know, filled them in a little bit more or contributed to, to worsening of a, a flooding down the, down the road. So, you know, it's, it's just, you know, all that, you know, to the true conservationist probably, um, you know, gets more into that. It gets a little deeper, oh, yeah. um, you know, than just, than just the waterfowl side for me. You know, but, you know, but, but again, there, you know, there's, there's muskrats, there's beavers, there's, there's a number, there's a, or there's a number of species that, that utilize those. Mm-hmm. You know, and that, that's just little... mammals. We're not talking yes, like that's not macro fish. invertebrates. Yeah. Fish, aquatic life, amphibians, uh, songbirds, other large game birds, migrating waterfowl. It's all critically important to that. And, and just by their nature, you talk about the runoff and erosion, um, you know, that is slower stagnant water. So what it does is help to those particles suspended in the water that makes it muddy water, they settle. And that's where you get really mucky, nasty bottoms um, in these swamps. But it allows that water to basically separate from some of the soil and then flow on into, again, that actual mainstream. So when we look at a wetland, we, I guess I my, my hope in, in doing this podcast is to share the role that it plays and the importance that it plays from a conservation ecosystem mindset that beyond just the value of a great place to attract waterfowl, um, they're, they're important to what we're doing and to life as we know it. Um, so what's the best way to, to then manage it? But like you said, there's diverse, diverse species of, of animals in here. What's, what's some of the like, uh, commonly found, shrubs and sedges and rushes in in some of these wetlands 
Yeah, I mean, it, it does vary, you know, because, you know, it, it's kind of, it, it's, you know, and wet wetlands are pretty neat in that uh, the, the depth, the water sure. depth matters. And, and when water, and when the water pattern kind of comes off, you know, uh, you know, millets, you know, millets is pretty common. Um, you know, well, let me, let me just, let me back up. What we call kind of the ephemeral areas, which are areas that kind of dry up. These are, those are locations that don't hold water year round. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just, they're areas that will get wet, but then they dry back up. You'll have smart weeds, you'll have mm-hmm. millets, uh, you'll have panicum grasses. Yep. Um, you know, there's, there, there's a number of different species that are there, button bush. Yeah, I think deer tongue, um, you know, which, uh, oh, yeah. river oats. Bottle brush yep. grass, all these sorts of things. Yeah, and you know, and you know, but then there's some other areas that kind of stay wetter, more longer. You know, even you know, you might even consider them uh, permanent. You know, keep them permanent water. Mm-hmm. Well, you got things like coontail, milfoil, yep. uh, cattails. You know, which can be a little bit obnoxious at times. You know, but then you can, uh, but then you also, you know, you have some trees that start to encroach in on that. Like I said, the cypress and the tupelo. Um, you know, then. Um, the, the other neat thing about a, a, you know, just outside of the plants even is, is that, you know, oftentimes during, especially during flooding events, but these, but these wetland areas and these wet locations are, are excellent fish spawning locations mm-hmm. and they hold, they hold little fish, you know, like there's a, there's a, there's a, what's called a flyer. You know, it's, if you look at your thumbnail, there's a little, there's a little bitty fish about the size of your thumbnail that that lives. There's also what's called a spotted orange spotted sunfish. You know, about the similar in size to the to the flyer. You know, just super small. That's as big as they get at maturity. And so, just you know, neat little creatures that live don't require a lot. You know, don't require a big pool of water, but just live in these locations and are really good filter feeders as well at helping to you know take out some you know, the microplankton and some of the algae that you know could. It caused potential problems down the road, you know. So I mean, it's just you know, just pretty neat. Uh, you know, my kids they always like to you know take a net and scoop up the mad toms and you know mm-hmm. the flyers and different things, kind of look at them and and you know play with them. And uh, we always bring a few back for an aquarium every year, you know, just out of our wetland. And it's just always kind of neat to kind of see some of that, um, you know. But you know, but again, it is it it's you know there's a it's a larger role. Uh, in the bigger scheme of things, you know, is what those wetlands actually truly, truly provide us. And and as you said, though, it is kind of the, the lifeblood in many ways when it comes to the water, uh, you know, it rejuvenating the water, I would say. Yeah, and this kind of goes back to, I guess, last week's podcast that we talked about. Um, we shared the presentation that we, had, that we presented there at Quail Forever State Meeting in Missouri was, you know, as a hunter, as a land manager, I don't just care about the game species themselves. I, I care about, honestly, a lot of different things. And, and the wetlands is one of the great examples of this is how hunters, honestly, should truly be caring about water quality. It all is, it's right there before you of what is happening. And when you're out there, not to say that you shouldn't be thinking about, you know, ducks lighting up, locking up into the decoys, but... To, to have a perspective on it, you know, that's something that you can share with people as to, hey, I, I love being out there. I, I love kind of conserving those acres and making them as beneficial as they can, even though, yeah, I do have, you know, the, the benefit of, of harvesting some ducks and whether it's feeding my family or just enjoyment. Um, you know what? I, I'm out here 
making the water quality better too if you're doing things in the right way. So there's a lot of different roles, again, that, that it all plays. Um, but again, it's important to understand them. So, Brian, you can build and construct and reintroduce these wetlands into areas that should be wetlands. You, you, you kind of shared that, the, the one, the transition that you had there on your property. Um, there's tons of different ways to do that. Um, but one of the, I guess I'm going to ask two questions and I'll let you just kind of run with it from there. But one is talk about some programs, maybe some cost share programs out there that might be available for a landowner to join in if they're looking to increase, um, wetland potentials on their property and then two um how then you might be able to do some what we would term moist soil management in these areas and controlling the water levels and the drawdown times to get different um types of vegetation returning in a given year yeah you know the the uh, my 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 wetland would have been 2006 or seven when we actually developed it. We, we purchased the property or, well, or the, the bank purchased the property, so to speak in 2005. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but we, you know, we put it into a, what's called a CRP program. It was called CP 23. Now, unfortunately, as we all know, if you're in the conservation realm and you kind of hang around, you know, there's not as much CRP dollars out there, conservation reserve program dollars out there that, that there once was. Mm-hmm. You know, however, you know, one program that has kind of transformed and is probably still at the head of all of that when it comes to wetlands um, was a wetland, the Wetland Reserve Program, or WRP. You know, that has kind of transitioned. It's now called WRE, Wetland Reserve Enhancement, you know, a typical federal government they don't they don't like everything to stay stay stagnant so they got to change things every so often so so they uh you know so they went ahead and changed now it's under what's called a wre and and that's probably the best the best program out there for anybody when it comes to cost share um and you know and 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 just big number one just because availability uh there is a ranking there is a ranking system but that ranking system oftentimes has to based upon cost to uh read to to rejuvenate or to reestablish or or essentially rebuild a wetland you know what the cost i mean that plays a role and that also you know maybe you know maybe whether or not it's you know what kind of benefits you know what kind of benefit do you expect to gain out of it mm-hmm. as far as habitat wise resource wise and even water quality wise you know down the road so there's a ranking system to get in it but it's a super duper good program you know and that I won't get into the dollars and cents of it because it does vary by sure. county by county and state by state, you know, as far as the caps, but it is a really, really good paying program. Um, it can be as short as 10 years or they can have, or you can enroll it in what's called the perpetual easement, mm-hmm. which is for 99.9 years. It's not really forever, but it, but it's for you and I, it's pretty much forever. <laughs> so, I mean, but, 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 you know, your payment is, you know, also uh, changes based upon how long you want to keep it in or, or not. So, you know, that, that, that'll be a little bit dictated with that as well. Um, you know, but, but what I did, you know, just kind of, you know, let you know, I mean, kind of give an example, you know, with my property, I, we, we essentially put a, you know, to reestablish or to reconstruct the wetland or, uh, or to my, and I shouldn't say reconstruct because it was, it was, to be honest with you, if I'd have done nothing else to it, um, if we hadn't have put levees back up, 
it wouldn't have mattered. I mean, there yeah. it, it was wet. There was millet. There was panicum. There was nut sedges. There was all yeah. sorts of wetland plant plants and grasses. And it periodically, you know, during the wet time of the year, you could walk out there and it was soupy and, and it might be, you know, a half inch of water out there. Right. So it was already, you know, swampy and it was there. I mean, it, it was, you know, it was a wetland. You know, however, you know, I wanted to maximize, you know, the capabilities of the property and essentially, you know, what I wanted to, you know, because the way I look at it now is that, you know, back in the day, you know, there were literally millions upon millions of acres of swamp. Millions. And, you know, yes. but really there was, when it comes to high, how much of that was high quality and usable for, for many wildlife critters was probably pretty marginal. You know, there would have been a every year there'd have been a few acres over here that's 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 high quality a few acres over there and so what i wanted to do was i wanted to maximize the the not only the utilization by wildlife but just honestly the quality of my wetland each and every year mm -hmm. and so and, and the reason why and and so what i wanted to do with that is i wanted to be able to manage it for what i call what's known as or what's called moist soil that's essentially managing for you know wetland plants and, and what I wanted to do was maximize the amount of food that would be available to such as ducks, you know, water, migrating waterfowl. But there's also, there's things that, you know, some people may have never heard of, uh, a rail. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, you've probably heard of coots. You've probably heard of woodcock and, and you may have heard snipe. You yep. know, and there actually is a thing called the snipe. If somebody wants to take you snipe hunting, you actually yeah. truly can go snipe there, hunting. That is true. Yeah. 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 They're not yeah, they're completely just, pulling your leg. Yeah, no, exactly. But. Um, you know, there, but I wanted to maximize, uh, you know, w what occurred there. Mm -hmm. You know, I wanted to ensure that there was high quality, a high quality habitat year after year after year on a small, on a small acreage piece. And so, and, and to do that, we had, to, we put up a levy, um, used, uh, uh, and, and installed in that levy, uh, what's called the water control structure, stop log structure, you know, a weir, you know, whatever you want to, whatever you want to call it. But essentially it was a, it was a box. You know that I purchased it from AgriDrain, a really good company out of Iowa. But we 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 bought it. There's a pipe that runs into the interior. And there's a pipe that runs to the exterior. So basically, <laughs> basically for yeah. someone listening, interior is into the swamp there, and exterior yes. is below under the levee. Outside that would drain, correct? Yes. Yeah, because the, the exterior is to let water out, and the interior is to let. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. Essentially, to hold water when I want to, mm -hmm. but also to allow it to come out whenever I don't. I, you know, whenever I want water to pull off of it. And the reason, and the reason why I wanted to pull, I want to pull water off of it is to maximize the the quality and vegetation. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, because what I do, I mean, just kind of tell you my system. You know, and granted, this will, you know, the timing, you know, needs to be a little different depending upon where you're at and. And you could be 10 miles up the road from me, and you might need to uh, vary your timing just based upon what your soil is and, and, and what you find works best. But what I wanted to do, I wanted to promote, you know, within my wetland, I wanted to promote um, a lot of millet and a lot of smartweed. Right. And so in order to do that, what I do is I slowly pull the water off. So I have these – I have – Inside of the inside of the water control structure, there is essentially kind of a, a locking system, a damming system inside of it, and and, is, and all it is is, is pieces of plexiglass, you know, that are that are six inches wide, and and they're stacked on top of them. There's a whole row and column in for, and it's and it's four foot tall, and and so what they're I they're like do little is building blocks that stacked on top of one another, right? Exactly, yep. exactly. <laughs> 
And so, you know, what I do is I slowly, beginning beginning in April 1st, you know, right around April 1st, I slowly start to crack the top one. Mm-hmm. This, this allows water to kind of seep out, much like what you would have to mimic, you know, evaporation, you know, yeah. and, and water. And it's, and it's a drawdown system that is slow and methodical. And each, because each week I, I go there and I, and I, I raise the crack up a little bit higher, a little mm-hmm. bit higher, and a little bit higher, until essentially I pull virtually all the water off. And oftentimes it takes about a month, you know, for me to get, you know, to, to drain the entire thing. It's normally about April to, or excuse me, May 15th or so, you know, so it's a month, month and a half. And, and in doing that, what that does is that really promotes, uh, it, it, well, it, it, it really promotes, uh, millets, smart weeds, and, and a lot of the panicum grasses that will come on throughout, you know, throughout the year. But it really, but it also hinders such things such as cucklebur, which is, right. as we all know, can be extremely noxious and really doesn't provide a whole lot of food quality for anything that I want to promote. Mm-hmm. And and so, um, so, you know, so in doing that, what you know, what I what I've done is I've maximized the amount of forage that's going to be available to to migrating waterfowl and shorebirds and other things as they move south. And 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 it's a, kind of a key point to that though is what I also do to to continue that rotation, much like you do in, say, a warm-season grass field or a, a field that you manage for old field or early successional management, you know, you've got to go in there and you've got to, you've got to cause some sort of disturbance every mm-hmm. so often. Mm-hmm. So, I, so what I do is I have the property blocked up in thirds to where I'll go in and do a deep, heavy disking. You know, I'll literally turn it over. Every, th- every, every part of that property will be turned over every, every third year. And, and the reason for that is because when you've got all that water that's layered on top, that, that, that's real heavy. There's, you know, seven, yep. you know, seven, eight pounds, you know, to a gallon of water. Well, that causes compaction and, 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 it, and it really hinders or, or, and, and in kind of prohibits, you know, a lot of the quality plants and grasses and, and, and things that we want to grow to grow. And, so, and truthfully, so we, every we single to, year, the amount of runoff and erosion and sediment coming in from that runoff is just getting stacked and stacked and stacked on top. And if you don't yes. have, basically you're having to re-expose a seed bank. So it's it's much different. So if there's people out there listening, oh, you're saying deep tillage. This is much different from an upland situation. You know, we're having many different other things occur in a wetland from, again, the 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 weight of the water plus the new uh, soil and, and erosion runoff that's coming into it. This is a necessary practice to expose a native seed bank. We're not trying to um, disrupt a seed bank. We're trying to expose a seed bank to get the vegetation from natives to be able to grow and grow at the right composition um, and not have single species take over. So it's an incredibly important step to doing this type of management within the wetland. Absolutely. Yeah, because if you don't, Essentially, what you're going to get, you might get some sedges, you know, but mm-hmm. traditionally, what you get are, are the sedges you really don't want. And and the other and the other thing that's kind of key that people miss out on or don't quite always get is that you know whenever you know often when I do this disking, oftentimes it's in August, mm-hmm. and you know, and it's right before we start draw or start putting a little bit of water back on. And when and and a key point to that too is when you're putting water on it, you do it slowly. I don't want to dump water all on at one time. I I want to do it slowly because there's lots of different, you know, lots of different shorebirds, yellow legs, and and just just a, a ton. I mean, I I I could 
turns, just all sorts mm-hmm. of little little things that we don't think about, you know, that come out there and utilize that. But when I also do that turnover, what I've done is what vegetation had grown there all summer long, now all of a sudden that's mixed in the soil, that's mixed in the dirt, and it's kind of exposed. When we put water on it, it begins to rot it because it begins to decay. Mm-hmm. You know, it produces a, you know, a ton of invertebrates. You know, so there's a ton of little bugs and microscopic or- organisms that are that are really key to a lot of those migrating birds and even the early migrating ducks. It's, you know, there's it's a beginning lot, you of know, a food of, chain. You know, you know, teal, you know, a variety, of, a variety of those early migrators, pintail, you know, mm-hmm. gadwall, all that stuff really, really likes those mi- those invertebrates, those and things that, and plank, photoplankton things that we don't see. You know, they 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 focus on them, and so you know. So long story short is it's what I'm doing is I'm allowing for because I'm allowing for a s- different stages within my wetland yes. because I because I've also got a portion of my my wetland that hasn't been disturbed at all You've in got a couple relatively years. I've got another thirds. part that, that was disturbed last year y- yes you yes. know and, and then all of a sudden now we got this new disturbance so what I've got is I've got different succession different stages. So that the rails and the and and the woodcock they can be over there in the areas I haven't disturbed this year. That's where they want to be. They want to mm-hmm. be in that thick vegetative layer. Then you know, kind of that mid-story layer. You know, that's where you're going to have some other dabblers. You're going to have some other yellow legs. But but more but more importantly, you're going to have a, a, a whole other diversity than a variety of species are going to utilize that area that I that I have disturbed. That is down to bare dirt and you know and and, and rotting and decaying vegetation. So, you know, so the whole point is that now all of a sudden I've I've provided three different layers for every single species, regardless in that migration, you know, regardless of what happens, you know. And as you said, you know, the other other thing, too, is because it is a filter, you know, by leaving some some vegetation up there, now all of a sudden that vegetation becomes the vegetation I've left has become more of a filter for sediment, pollutants and Mm -hmm. other things to become more deposit become deposited there. And so it, it benefits the whole cycle all the way down, you know, especially the people downstream from me. And, you know, so the, the importance is, though, that I want to provide diversity, high-quality diversity, and I want to provide in, – in because we don't have the millions of acres of wetlands that we once had. Nope. You know, it would be – you know, it would be really easy to say, you know – Hey, you know what? You don't have to do anything. It's you know just let it go, let it go native, and let Mother Nature take 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 its course. And that would be okay if we had still had millions of acres of swamp and wetlands across the country. But we don't have that. So what I want to do is I want to maximize with my li- my little piece of heaven. I want to maximize the quality of that, and and that's the reason why I do the hands-on management. That's yes. the reason why I do this. You know, part of it is I like doing it. I love it. You know, me and the kids go out there. We have fun with it. You know, but the other part is, is that, you know, it truly is, there's an importance there. It, it really means something, you know, to actually go out there and to to have a high quality wetland, mm-hmm. not just, you know, a spot on the map that that gets wet and has vegetation. But I want to have the highest quality that I possibly can to maximize its effectiveness and, and what it what it truly does, you know, for whether it's filtering, you know, contaminants or whether it's providing food for waterfowl. And, and the neat thing is, is that we can talk about, you know, whether or not it's specifically focused toward waterfowl, because that is, I mean, you know, I've got a, I've got a big concrete pit, you know, that, uh-huh. you know, on the bottom of it, we got, we got my son's name, Landon, Landon's duck pit, etched in the bottom of it, 2007, it. I think it is. And, uh-huh. you know, and so, you know, I mean, that, that's essentially why we, we, we did it. However, 
it goes far beyond that, you know, and and in in actually doing, you know, the managing for waterfowl mm-hmm. is actually managing for the rest of it as well. 100%. Doing, you know, and, and and that's what gets me there. That's what gets me there, and that's what helps keep me there. You know, but at the same time, as a conservationist, I've got other goals, and I know that I'm I'm accomplishing way more. There is so zero you, shame so, in, in in promoting better habitat for game species to be able to harvest them. That is that is the, if you will, the, the what did you call it earlier? The uh, the hook. Yeah, the hook. And and what I think you said something like the um, blood source or something. That is what is going to get more acres conserved. That is the reason hunters can do more on the landscape. And that's why we're getting behind people like you, Brian, who are interested in doing this and trying to promote these activities. Because, yes, we are hunters, and and a lot of us will, will term ourselves as conservationists. But beyond just harvesting ducks and waterfowl off of a wetland, we're doing much more than that. And we need to be educated on that so we can present why we're doing things and how we're doing things and how they're impacting, positively impacting other species of veget you know, vegetative species and non game species down to zooplankton and a water source. Like we need to care about it, we need to present that argument and we need to be proud of why we're doing it. And there's again zero shame in the fact that, hey, one of the main reasons is I want to bring my kids up and and introduce them to the outdoors and part of that is is um waterfowl hunting but be beyond all of that outside of the season i'm also going to be teaching them and giving them basically an outdoor playground a classroom to learn in as we're managing this property together yeah you're you're i mean and and it's the thing that the thing that property gives me the most benefit of is is a lot of times it's the memories, whether it's made with, you know, me directly with my kids or, mm-hmm. you know, or my son out there with, you know, I, you know, when we're building the, the duck, you know, building the duck pit and constructing the duck pit, um, you know, forming up walls for concrete and things like that. You know, my, my dad and, and my wife's dad were out there helping, but oftentimes they were out there running around catching dragonflies mm-hmm. with my son at the time. He was, he was just, uh, he was two. Yeah. So, you know, riding, you know, but in the time spent on the tractor, you mm-hmm. know, just different things like that. There's, so you have, you have that benefit and it goes perfect, you know, once again with the, um, you know, with the slogan with land and legacy, you know, that, that, that love of the land, love for the land is, is much greater, you know, than, and the memories, you know, the memories that are made with that are much greater than just what we realize. That's and, right. uh, and so it's, you know, for me that it all, it all ties back in together. Um, you know, and kind of brings it all together. I guess it does. You'd say. It does, and, and again, it, it's just it's an important it's important to get behind and, and important to understand what we're doing out there on the landscape and and why we're doing it, the reasons behind it. Again, there's no shame in it, but the additional benefits that the land is receiving from us being out there managing it, whether we call ourselves a hunter or not, or you're out there just doing it because you love the environment, you want to make it better. My hat is off to you. And we just need to share this kind of information so that people truthfully know the value that they have on the property. They might look and see it's just a duck that I want to see lock up in there. Well, when you're not there, 
what else is happening? What else is that area, those acres that you're helping support? What is it supporting? What are the other life cycles? And, and we can't we can't be or put our blinders on. Um, you know, our perspective, I think, as hunters needs to change, shift a little bit. So um, really appreciate all that information, though, Brian. Is there anything else that you kind of want to wrap up? I mean, I know we would go – we could go in a hundred different directions as into managing wetlands and hopefully we will in the future um, and, and get more down to the nitty gritty of it. But that was just a great summary of an introduction into learning more about them, the role that they play and a, and a little bit of some management, but anything else you kind of want to throw in there before we wrap it up? Oh, um, no, I mean, we hit, it's like, we can talk for days, but you know, I would, I'd highly recommend anybody Virtually in every state, there's a there's some sort of wetland. There's a swamp, you know, swampy area. You know, I, I I'd highly recommend you you know people stopping in at their state or federal area like that and just kind of you know taking a peek and kind of getting a better understanding. I mean, because they always have really good excerpts of you know water mm-hmm. quality examples and things that those wetlands and swamps you know the benefits they are in in that local area. You know, because like I said, you know, virtually we're essentially talking about southeast Missouri. You know, in my example, but, you know, but there are examples of this all up and down the Mississippi, Missouri, mm-hmm. Atlantic Coast, Pacific Coast. I was going to say a ton on the coast. Yeah. yeah. If, if you go and look up uh, United States Fish and Wildlife Service refuges, um, there's there's tons of refuges all across. I, I want to say there's 110 or something like that. For some reason, that number just stuck out in my head. But they are absolutely everywhere, um, East Coast. Mississippi flyways, um, any important waterfowl flyways, tro- neotropical migration flyways, they're everywhere. Um, so they're, they're incredible resources and places just to go look at and hang out, hang out for a day. Absolutely. Well, Brian, thank you so much for your time um, and you sharing all that information. I know there's going to be a lot of people who are like, man, I, I never thought of a wetland like that. And that's exactly, again, the purpose of this podcast um, get more people loving the land. So thank you again for your time, sir. Anytime. Well, thanks guys for listening. Um, we are going to be sharing some new and important things coming up, um, in the next few weeks on this podcast that we've got, um, kind of shaking and coming up, um, with some properties that we'll have our hands on. And, um, so be watching for that, be listening for that. And also, um, if you haven't signed up for QDMA Steward 2 course in Southeast Ohio, September 13th through the 16th, be sure to do it. I just got back from a trip of speaking in Ohio, and there's a lot of folks who are interested. Um, signups have been going um, really, really well. I think they're honestly getting pretty close to full. So um, be sure to, if you're interested, register for that event. Um, if you got any questions about wetlands, um, contact us, info at landandlegacy.tv, or questions about um, properties, rural real estate, recreational real estate, let us know. We'd be happy to answer them. Again, Brian, thank you very much. We will catch you guys next week. <laughs>